Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. On today's show, we brought on the Bowdis Financial Team, John, Kira, and Kayla, on to talk about the book Wild Problems. This is the latest one that we're reading as part of our book club. And this one, I actually picked it. Um, this book's by Russ Roberts. And I got this the idea for this book. It was on a summer reading book list I saw for advisors. And, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, us as advisors, we just work on investment portfolios, putting together financial plans, using planning software. And then if the plan showed that someone was on track or if they weren't on track to their goals, you know, what steps do they take to adjust so that they can hit them? And it's still a big part of what we do, but nowadays it's just one part of the value that we add as advisors. We're also asked much harder questions when we meet with clients. And these are usually ones that you can't actually solve with a spreadsheet, but they, what they do is they prompt conversations about values and things like self-fulfillment. Um, and we even go as far as, as saying, uh, you know, that everyone's trying to get up this advice value stack where self-fulfillment is the top and that you, at the, at the bottom, you have, you know, your goals and your investments and things like that. So the author, he refers to these questions or issues as wild problems in that they can't be measured or solved with a spreadsheet or an algorithm. But they can also be ignored because there's some, you know, crucial questions that must be answers. We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, what a wild, wild problem is, how you, and how, what the framework is to go about, about solving it. So Kira, I'll kick it off, uh, start off with you and maybe you can start with just defining what a wild problem is. Sure. So a wild problem is defined as a fork in the road of life where knowing which path is the right one is not obvious. The pleasure and pain from choosing one path over another is ultimately hidden from us. And then also where the path we choose defines who we are and who we might become. Wild problems are big decisions we have to deal with in our lives. They can happen every day or they can be more like one-offs. So here are some examples that the author gave of wild problems. Whether or not to get married, who to marry, whether or not to have a child, what career path to follow, how much time to devote to friends and family, and how to resolve daily ethical dilemmas. As Mark said, these big decisions can't be made with data or science or the usual rationale approaches. So this book seeks to answer the question of if the important things are hard to measure and the measurable things are misleading, what kind of decision framework is left for us? So that's basically kind of like a summary of the first chapter of the book, which is just talking about what a wild problem is. But then the author illustrates a wild problem in the next following two chapters, which I'll cover. The book introduces the concept of Darwin's dilemma, which is essentially the focus of these two chapters. In 1838, Charles Darwin faced a wild problem where he was deciding whether or not to marry And this decision was linked with the likelihood that he and his wife would have children. So to come to a rational conclusion, he made a list of the pluses and minuses related to the decisions. This is just like a pros and cons list. On one side, it was to be married. And on the other side, it was to not be married. 
Here's an example of some of the items that were on the list. It was longer than this, but I'll give a couple examples. So on the married column, it says children, if it please God, constant companion and friend in old age who will feel interested in one object to be loved and played with better than a dog anyhow, home and someone to take care of house. And then in the not married column listed, no children, no second life, no one to care for, one in old age. What is the use of working without sympathy from near and dear friends who are near and dear friends to the old except relatives? Next was freedom to go where one liked, choice of society and little of it, um, conversation of clever men at clubs. And then the last one was not forced to visit relatives and to bend in every trifle. So these were actually pretty funny um, going through them because it's just interesting what came to mind. Obviously, this was decades ago. And our perception on if we were doing a pros and cons list of to be married, um, I think it would look a lot different nowadays. But basically, the whole point is this exercise seems to be rational as you're making an estimate of your expected well-being if you were to be married and if you were not to be married. And then from there, you can choose the option that has the best expected well-being. So like, if you look at the married column and you decide that those are the best options, then you can choose that. So that's kind of like the basics of doing a pros and cons list. Then the author goes into talking about how decades before Darwin's marriage dilemma, it was actually Benjamin Franklin who suggested a technique for making a list like this a little bit more practical to help you with your decision making. So once you create a pros and cons list, you can then work to estimate their respective weights. And then in doing so, we can either cancel out a pro and a con that are roughly the same magnitude so it would kind of look like a couple of things would be crossed out on the left side, a couple of things would be crossed out on the right side. And then what's left is where the balance lies. And therefore, you can come to a determination accordingly on which would be better for you to decide on. This part of the book was um, Russ Roberts making a point that wherever we can replace human judgment by a formula, we should at least consider it. He talks a little bit here about how when we're deciding between two homes, um, the unit of measure is square footage. And so this is kind of just a way to put a formula around a decision. And then the third chapter, which continues the Darwin's dilemma, it opens up with saying when Darwin was trying to decide whether or not to marry, the information he really wanted was how his life would turn out if he decided to marry versus how it would turn out as a single man. But at the end of the day, Darwin didn't have enough information to make this informed decision because the part of a marriage that is visible to an outsider is such a small part of the experience. It's like deciding if we want to be a vampire. We have no idea what that would entail. And basically, the whole point here was like the items that were listed on his pros and cons list were very minute. He can't imagine his daily life as a husband and father, particularly the upside. So we can't assess whether the expected costs outweigh the expected benefits. But even if he could, he still faces that like vampire problem where um, how will the experiences and the costs and benefits when he's married with children will change. And then finally, which I just kind of touched on, there are aspects of being a husband and a father that loom larger than just everyday experiences of life. So truly, how can we take that into account? So that was sort of a synopsis of um, what a wild problem is, an example of a wild problem being Darwin's dilemma and the thought process behind weighing an option when you're at a wild problem. Yeah, I have to admit, I use Darwin's pros and cons list um, a lot. To I didn't use it to decide whether or not to marry, but for other the decisions, I have used it before. But Robert's 
he weaves this theme of flourishing into kind of the, the, the these wild problems. Kayla, how does he say, um, or how does he weave in flourishing and what is flourishing? Yeah, the idea comes from the ancient Greeks and it refers to a richer, more fulfilling way of life. And he emphasizes that it's about taking the long view and doing what you're passionate about. And it's more deep than looking at just a pros and cons list. Darwin never was married, so he doesn't, like, he couldn't anticipate things about being married on the pros and cons list. So obviously his downsides could easily outweigh the upsides of the decision. Another example from these chapters is he talks about going on a hike and how it might be super strenuous as you're actually like going up and you might not be having fun. But once you reach the top, you realize like, oh, it was worth it. And he talks about um, another person from the time period of Darwin. He uses Franz Kafka, who was a writer, and he also is faced with the dilemma dilemma of whether or not he should marry Instead of just using a pros and cons list, Roberts talks about using an example of taking a future trip to Italy and Rome. You have like a rough idea of what you want to do there, but you ask a ton of different people what they did and what their experiences were and where you should go. And every person gives you a different answer. So it's impossible to plan everything based on the input and experiences of others because everyone is different. So you just have to like pick the best person to go with, knowing that you guys both like our architecture and like the scenery, and then you just hope for the best. It's not about making a rational decision with every piece of information. It's about doing the best you can with not fully understanding and anticipating the other stuff. He later talks about how it comes back to the question surrounding wild problems is who am I? And the answer is going to be different for everyone, obviously. What works for one person might not work for another. And then back to the example of Darwin and Kafka, he was saying how they each had their pros and cons to marriage, but each of them came to a different conclusion. Darwin ended up getting married and having a lot of kids and obviously had a great career that we all remember. And then Kafka chose to stay single and focused on writing And everyone also knows his name. So they made opposite choices, but each of them flourished in their own way. Yeah, I think in addition to to flourishing, one of the other, I guess you'd call it a principle of the framework that he says we should have for answering these wild problems is really how not to look at yourself as the center of of everything. John, how does he talk about like how to get over yourself and, and really approach things? Well, first, I, I just, as I was reading this book and, and it kind of relates to, you know, your question, I found myself looking back on my life and like all those sliding door moments where I made these big decisions. And, um, I found that if I was to apply, if, and, and obviously to the best of my ability, a lot of those decisions are, are many years ago. But if I apply that decision making process to a lot of the decisions that I made that I, I'm really happy, um, that I've made today, I probably wouldn't have made them, if that makes sense. Um, you know, if I was to make those purely from a rational, make myself happy, be happy in the moment, um, it certainly didn't make that decision to have kids because <laughs> I think having kids and being married are two very good examples of that where kind of at first selfless decisions and through that decision, your mindset changes. For example, like with 
Um, he talks a lot about in in the chapter that you're referring to. He he talks a lot about how our inner dialogue is frameworking ourselves as the main character of this sitcom or whatever it may be. That very well could be the case, but you know, as you start having kids and getting married, as an example, like you know, when you're in that moment, you're trying to make a decision as to whether to have a wife. You can't relate to that the idea that ten years from there, once you try when you once you marry someone that you now love that person so much that you get these other feelings that you just can't you can't relate to part of what i think that he's trying to to say with with this with this framework of like you being the main chapter you know compared to looking at yourself as part of like a story and everyone is kind of like a character and you're you're part of this this group of of characters is like setting the groundwork for the idea that you know we we aren't making decisions today based off of just our happiness but we will get more happiness from including those things in our lives and hard for us to, to wrap our heads around that. And, you know, the conclusion is, is that you might want to consider reframing that, that mindset and putting yourself in this story. So for instance, he talks about how Darwin actually had a very successful relationship with his wife. You know, maybe that was more about him including himself as a part of her life, as a part of that story. And he uses friends, a really cool movie. I really like love actually. And Seinfeld even like where in those movies, there's no like one center character. There are kind of all these like interwoven stories. Like even, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's called Seinfeld, but it's really not about Seinfeld. It's about all four of them. And they kind of sometimes overlap. Um, if you've seen Love Actually, which if you haven't, it's actually a really good movie. There's all these stories that are kind of interwoven, um, and kind of happening at the same time. So I think that's what makes it a really great movie is it's not just about this one self-centered person. It's, it's like, it's like kind of gives you all these different perspectives and, and from different angles, from different stories. And then from there, he, he takes that, that idea of like, you know, okay, maybe we, it, we can live a more fulfilling life if we have this framework that's more about, um, you know, us as being a story and, and, and it help us make us better choices along the way. Cause we're not just thinking about ourselves. Um, he takes that a step further and talks in a chapter, which he calls privilege your principles. He talks about how the problems of ethics are very much wild problems as well. And he uses the example of, uh, someone uh, finding a wallet. Let's say you find a wallet has $200 in it and there's no one around. You find it. There's really no penalty or, and you really don't see any reason from a pure rational perspective, not to take the money because you're like, okay, I have $200. I can spend it on myself. He refers to it. A study that a high school did, they asked 100 high school kids, what's the rational thing to do? And almost all of them said, yeah, no one sees you and, you know, you get the benefit of the wallet. But what they, they fail to look at and what he points out is, is that for some of us and a lot of us, even so, we, we may get more pleasure from actually giving it back because we feel like we did the right thing. He even talks about how there's three types of people. And hopefully I get this right. But, but, but the idea is, is that there's those people who, you know, just purely will act on rationale. There's the people who want to act on the rationale, but they want to actually, you know, do the right thing. And then there's people who, you know, just get a lot of pleasure from doing the right thing. So the other cool part about that chapter is, is that he talks about a real life story about how his wife um, lost an earring. Long story short, they're actually on a trip and they come back to their hotel room and hotel room. Um, and his wife was really, really upset for, for, for losing it. And was super thrilled to, to find it on the table in their hotel with a note saying, Hey, I think you may have lost this. And they happened to be in another room before that. And for whatever reason, moved to a different one. Anyway, she returned it and he uses that. And I thought it was really cool how that story brought the whole chapter together because, you know, he was able to kind of give you some ideas as to proving his point about how or how, why did she return this expensive earring? 
was it because you know just plainly like she thought of herself as the person who does the right thing it didn't matter whether you know she could sell it for some money or there's there's you know the financial benefit or you know maybe she was conflicted maybe she saw it and she's like mm, you know i really could probably buy something here but you know maybe she's one of those people who just wants to hold on to it but you know wants to be that better person and you know almost has to look at herself as part of this big story and eventually does return it so you know the idea that you know, these ethical decisions are wild problems really resonated with me and, ma- and made a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the book grew on me as I went through it. My favorite chapter was one of the last ones where he talks about uncertainty and the future. And what he does is he gives a strategies for dealing with wild problems and the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty in the future. He gives these ad- advice from Bill Belichick. So Bill Belichick is the coach of the New England Patriots. He's earned six rings. He's considered a genius, although I guess there's debate now on whether it was Tom Brady or really him who was the real the real genius. But Belichick and, and his the coaching staff, they spend hundreds of hours preparing for the draft. So they do that. They conduct personal interviews. They watch thousands of hours of video. They use a mix of qualitative, quantitative analysis to rank all these uh, college players. And then they go and they draft accordingly to their to their rankings. This, the system, it's, it's really complicated that, you know, they're in this war room. They blur out any video of it. They blur out the, the whiteboards and their strategies. Um, but they don't actually believe that their system is a viable predictor of who's going to be a good NFL player who, or who won't or who will be a draft bust. They say it's really like it's loose. It's vague. It's intermittent. And we know this because what Belichick is famous for doing is he'll trade his early round draft picks for draft picks in the later rounds. So what he does is he values quantity over quality. Very rarely does he trade, um, you know, does he bundle up lower round draft picks to, to get or to trade up in the draft to, to draft someone higher. And the reason is because there's an enormous amount of uncertainty around any one individual. He worries less about getting the exact right player with any one pick. He likes to choose a lot of players. So they all, the Patriots often have more picks than any other team. And then once the players arrive at training camp, he gets a lot more information that he can't get from those thousands of, even those thousands of hours of studying film or, or scouting. Then the preseason comes along. He finds out how these players skill will fit in the Patriot system, how they're, you know, how the player's personality, um, fits in there, which is impossible to observe from a distance. So you may assume that a good player, you know, in college is going to be a good player in, in the pros. Um, and then some people, some of the players do wind up performing well elsewhere once they do leave the Patriot system. So what he does by this is he increases the denominator, the total number of picks, and he learns as he goes along. Um, the players that don't fit in are cut. He doesn't care if they're high or low draft picks. He signs also signs a lot of players after the draft, draft where the contracts are inexpensive. Um, so Roberts gives us four things that we can learn how Belichick approaches his draft. First, is that optionality is powerful um, when you have the freedom to do something, but not the obligation. So think of Zappos. We all understand the, the pleasantness of free shipping, free returns. You get the ability to change your mind once you know you get your shoes and you can wear them around the house. They might look comfortable, um, but until you put them on, you don't really know, you know if they're for you or how comfortable they'll be. Optionality should change your whole process of, of shopping. Buy more shoes. Don't agonize over each purchase. Don't waste time trying to get more information, whether it's reviews, looking at pictures. 
the free shipping and the free returns fits Belichick's draft philosophy. He orders more players because he knows the law of large numbers works in his favor. Um, you know, even if you take it from investing, if you look at venture capitalists, even the best venture capitalists, they strike out seven out of 10 times. Investing, you can say, is a wild problem, um, especially in the, the private equity or venture capital space. And what they do is they rely on the law, the law of large numbers. And if, even if they only hit on a couple of their investments, it makes up for the other six, seven, or, you know, eight out of 10 that don't. So what he says is, uh, Robert says is try and have more experiences than fewer. Try things. Embrace opportunities, and he says, that make your heart sing. Um, second, he says, don't assume what works for you works for, for them. Um, you know, it goes going back to Zappos, when you can put your shoes on or test drive a car. Surveys, you know, asking people about their happiness, putting the shoes on tells you a lot more about how we, you'll like the shoes or how comfortable they, they will be than reading a survey about it or reading about it. Third, he he says, uh, Robert says, sunk costs are sunk. Belichick doesn't get embarrassed that a decision he made didn't work out. If the shoe doesn't fit, he doesn't feel, Belichick doesn't feel compelled to wear it. He'll move on from a player. Um, you know, often we say, I took the job because, but it was a mistake. Uh, I went to law school, but it was a mistake. No, he, Robert says a mistake is ordering anchovies on your pizza, even though you don't like them. Um, you know, life choices that turn out differently from what we hoped are not mistakes, they're just choices that turned out differently than what we hoped. And we shouldn't call them mistakes and you shouldn't beat yourself up over them. They're, and what he says is think of them more of like adventures that have twists and turns, um, you know, or that have ups and downs. And if you can go on an adventure, go. If it turns out badly, cut it short. If it turns out great, go for the ride on it. And this beats trying to figure out, you know, before you go on the adventure, which are the best ones to, to go on. And fourth, he says, Grit and persistence are overrated. So uh, one of my favorite books is Grit by Angela Duckworth. She might have a problem with this. But um, what he says, uh, Robert says, it's a bad idea to quit immediately. And he does say it's a bad idea to quit immediately just because something is difficult or unpleasant. Um, but he says some things may never become delightful. If you hate, you know, if you hate law school, being a lawyer, change careers. And it's not a mistake because you had you had incomplete information when you made that first decision. Like Belichick, cut your losses and move on. You know, live, change. And what he says is the title of the chapter is Be Like Bill. So, you know, he says, date before you marry, be an intern before you join a company, hire an intern before you make a long-term commitment as an employer, visit a place before you move there. Um, you know, don't finish every book you start. A lot of what, what makes wild problems so painful is the regret. And what he says is you shouldn't have the regret. Um, and, you know, one of the things he says, which you hear a lot is, you know, always trying to get more information, get more information. It's it's a form of uh, procrastination. It's not going to help. And, you know, one way to avoid life passing you is spend less time on figuring out the right decision and how to widen your options and just be able to cope with the disappointment if the decision does turns out badly. That, I guess, sums up the chapter that I'm covering and, and the book. You know, I'm sure people have their own wild problems that, you know, if anyone's looking for help trying to kind of apply this framework to it, we're happy to talk. You can schedule a free consultation with us at boutusfinancial.com backslash call. So John, Kira, and Kayla, I want to thank you for being on and thank you to everyone who tuned in today. Don't forget to follow the Agent of Wealth on the platform you listen from and leave us a review of the show. We're currently accepting new clients and if you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one consultation with our advisors, please do so at boutusfinancial.com backslash call. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.